Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest is Laura Cordes, Associate Professor of Law at Arizona State University. We'll be discussing her article, Bespoke Bankruptcy, which is forthcoming in the Florida Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Laura, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. You observe in the paper that we have a federal bankruptcy code that is uh, supposed to resolve issues of insolvency, to work out debts between debtors and creditors. I wondered if you could uh, introduce the paper a little bit and some of the background with just an explanation of how the bankruptcy code is supposed to work for debtors and creditors, and why are there situations in which this standard code-based system of bankruptcy maybe doesn't work or isn't desirable or isn't optimal? Broadly speaking, this is a really high-level overview, right? But the bankruptcy code provides a set of mechanisms for all sorts of different entities, corporations, individuals, even cities and towns, to adjust their relationship with their creditors. And the idea is that bankruptcy is intended to be a collective process. You, if you're a debtor in bankruptcy, you're not dealing with your creditors on an ad hoc basis, one by one. In bankruptcy, you have a judge-supervised proceeding where debtors can deal with all of their debts and all of their creditors in one place. And another, I think, really key feature about bankruptcy is the process is intended to be compulsory in nature. So that means that creditors, at least in theory, shouldn't be able to work around a bankruptcy to get a better deal. Now, of course, this is the ideal world of how bankruptcy is supposed to work. There are a few wrinkles in practice, but the general idea is the bankruptcy code and bankruptcy law provides a place for debtors to centralize their legal conflicts. It's a one-stop shop where debtors can say to creditors, these are the assets that I have, and this is how they're going to be divided. And that leads me actually to another key feature of the bankruptcy code, which is its priority scheme. So in theory, at least, a debtor's creditors should know where they rank in relation to each other with respect to their claims on the debtor's assets. Again, in broad terms, bankruptcy gathers all of a debtor's creditors together. It gathers all of a debtor's available assets together. And then it uses a defined priority scheme to distribute those assets to the debtor's creditors so that the debtor can proceed with whatever objective or outcome it's looking to accomplish through the bankruptcy process. And that could be reorganization. So allowing the debtor to continue operating as a business post-bankruptcy, it might be liquidation, allowing the debtor to sell off its assets. And if we're talking about individuals, we often refer to the goal as being a fresh start. So allowing the debtor to pay what she can and then leave those old debts behind. So at least in theory, the bankruptcy code provides a coordinated process in federal court, that's federal bankruptcy court, that gives debtors the time and the space that they need to kind of figure out what's the best way to proceed. And figuring out that best way almost always relates to value maximization. So how can the debtor maximize its value for the benefit of its creditors? And again, broadly speaking, the bankruptcy code accomplishes this goal through the use of chapters. 
So debtors will choose the bankruptcy code chapter that they want or need to use based on largely the outcome that they want to get out of a bankruptcy proceeding. So if I'm a business and I want to use bankruptcy to reorganize and I'd like to emerge from bankruptcy as a going concern, I'm likely going to choose chapter 11, which is designed primarily for business reorganizations. If I want to liquidate assets instead or maybe sell the business to someone else, I would choose chapter seven. If I'm an individual and I have a steady income, I might use chapter 13 to develop a plan where I can repay my creditors over time, or I might use chapter seven to pay what I can to creditors through the assets that I have. And so you can kind of see from what I've just said that bankruptcy oftentimes provides multiple avenues for businesses and consumers to deal with their debts. And one of the points that I make in the paper is that the bankruptcy code is predominantly corporate and consumer focused. This makes sense because businesses and consumers are, I would say, far and away the dominant users of the bankruptcy system. We do sometimes see, for example, municipalities, cities and towns filing for bankruptcy, but those numbers are dwarfed by the number of corporate and consumer filings that we see each year. And so what's happened is that over time, the business and the consumer portions of the bankruptcy code have become very well developed to the point that they have essentially become what I call sort of templates for how all bankruptcy should work under the code. This also makes sense because the bankruptcy code is designed to be widely applicable. It's a set of federal laws. And the idea would be Congress shouldn't have to jump in every time someone new files for bankruptcy to tweak the law to their particular attributes. So the bankruptcy code's processes, its chapters, are designed to be standardized or widely applicable. And most of the time, these processes work pretty well for most entities. However, and this is getting finally to the second part of your question, there are times when an entity might need relief that looks really different from the standardized mechanisms that the bankruptcy code provides. So if these entities are using the bankruptcy code and its standard processes, if they're using the code chapters to get relief, they might really be struggling or they might not be eligible for bankruptcy at all. And so I have called these entities bankruptcy misfits. Because to an extent, they're really like square pegs and round holes. They can't fully optimize the bankruptcy relief offered by the code because they're ineligible or because they're so structurally or functionally different from the entities that typically use the code that the sort of standard templates just don't work for them. And I should point out just one more thing that Congress has at times recognized the existence of bankruptcy misfits and from time to time has made adjustments to the bankruptcy code to accommodate them. One of the biggest examples that I give in the paper is municipalities, particularly general purpose municipalities like cities, towns, and counties. These types of entities are very differently situated from your typical corporate and consumer debtor. They can't liquidate because they have to continue to provide basic services to the public, so they can't generally sell off their assets. At the same time, they're also creatures of the state in which they're located. And so their financial distress, their financial situation more generally is pretty inextricably bound up with state law. And so you can imagine how a federal bankruptcy proceeding that adjusts municipal debt might create concerns about the federal government encroaching on state's powers. So Congress, in recognition of all of this, created a distinct chapter of the bankruptcy code with special provisions for municipalities in recognition that there were unique concerns that the other chapters of the bankruptcy code just didn't address. So there are bankruptcy misfits for which some of these standard templates for bankruptcy don't really work. And as you point out, 
sometimes there might be a critical mass of misfits and Congress will create a new template for them, as in the case of municipality bankruptcies. But you also note in the paper that Congress sometimes creates what you call bespoke bankruptcy provisions for situations in which code-based bankruptcy, these templates, they don't work for that particular entity. What do you mean by bespoke bankruptcy and how does this concept or this practice differ from code-based bankruptcy? Bespoke bankruptcy is the term that I use to describe bankruptcy relief that Congress creates outside of the bankruptcy code. So this isn't a chapter or a provision in the bankruptcy code. It's a separate law or statute that's completely outside of the code. And it's designed for a particular group of debtors in response to a perceived need. These debtors too are bankruptcy misfits, but Congress has decided that the way to better assist these debtors is to not work within the code. Instead, Congress creates bespoke bankruptcy, this customized debt relief designed for a particular group of debtors. And bespoke bankruptcy does contain many of the attributes of bankruptcy law more generally, but it's not housed within the code itself. So if we think of the bankruptcy code as providing bankruptcy relief in standardized form, right, through the chapters, bespoke bankruptcy provides bankruptcy relief in a much more tailored form. It's still using many principles from bankruptcy law. So for example, bespoke bankruptcy is still federal law. It may still be a collective process. It may have features that we draw on from bankruptcy law, like the automatic stay or other priority rules, for example. But it's also responding to distinct needs that are particular to the debtor at issue by creating additional mechanisms and additional processes that aren't found in the bankruptcy code that sort of stand on their own as different forms of relief. In the paper, you discuss Puerto Rico as an example of bespoke bankruptcy. Could you outline that case study for listeners? And are there any other high profile cases of bespoke bankruptcy that might help orient us or give us a, an idea of how this works in the real world? Yes. So PROMESA, which is the federal law that Congress created in response to Puerto Rico's debt problems, is a prominent example of bespoke bankruptcy. It is one that I outlined to a great extent in the paper. At bottom, PROMESA is a bankruptcy law. It's a federal remedy that provides an opportunity for an orderly collective process to resolve competing creditor claims. But PROMESA is also much more than bankruptcy. And for that reason, I categorize it as bespoke. It's not housed within the bankruptcy code. It's doing sort of bankruptcy plus work. PROMESA uses other mechanisms that we don't see in the bankruptcy code to help Puerto Rico and its instrumentalities to address their debt. So for example, PROMESA installed a financial oversight board on the island that's gotten a decent amount of press. And PROMESA also gives Puerto Rico more options outside of sort of the standard court supervised process to adjust its debt. So to take you back just a little bit, Puerto Rico has a very long and complicated history of financial ups and downs, but I'm not going to take you all the way back, just maybe to 2016. So in 2016, Puerto Rico was in really bad financial straits. In May of that year, it defaulted on a $422 million bond payment. And around that same time, the governor essentially promised that it was going to miss about an $800 million bond payment in July. Its debts were significantly more than its annual economic output. And if Puerto Rico had been a business or a consumer or even a U.S. municipality, we would have said it was a great candidate for bankruptcy. The problem was 
Puerto Rico, being a U.S. territory, was not eligible for bankruptcy under the bankruptcy code. And its municipalities or its instrumentalities, as they're referred to, were not eligible for Chapter 9 relief under the bankruptcy code either. So they weren't even eligible for the special relief that Congress had created for other U.S. municipalities. So Puerto Rico was aware that this might be a problem. And in 2014, it enacted its own law, the Puerto Rico Corporation Debt Enforcement and Recovery Act. And the act created essentially a bankruptcy-like debt resolution process for its instrumentalities. Pretty much as soon as the act hit the floor, (laughs) Puerto Rico's creditors objected to it strenuously. They challenged it, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. So in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated the Recovery Act. And the court said that the act was preempted by the bankruptcy code. Well, at the same time, the court also recognized that the bankruptcy code as currently constituted did not allow Puerto Rico to file for bankruptcy or any of its municipalities to file for bankruptcy. And so at this point, when the court issued its decision, it almost in the decision itself sort of hinted to Congress that it might want to think about amending the bankruptcy code to help Puerto Rico. And so in mid-2016, as Puerto Rico is going through these bond defaults, Congress acted, but it didn't amend the bankruptcy code. Instead, it passed PROMESA, which is the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. And PROMESA provided customized debt relief for Puerto Rico and its instrumentalities. It did this by blending the traditional bankruptcy process with other mechanisms designed to help Puerto Rico. Title III of the Act provides for a court-supervised debt adjustment proceeding, which looks a lot like Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code, but other provisions of the Act include different mechanisms. So there are provisions for collective creditor action to modify bond terms. The Act also created a board to oversee Puerto Rico's financial affairs. These aren't bankruptcy provisions. They're non-bankruptcy mechanisms that are sometimes used in other contexts to help distressed entities, but they don't come from the Bankruptcy Code. And so what I think Puerto Rico's experience shows is that sometimes the bankruptcy code isn't a good or maybe an appropriate mechanism to provide bankruptcy relief. It's certainly the case that some of the reasons Congress chose not to amend the bankruptcy code for Puerto Rico were political, but there were also substantive difficulties that would have made inserting Puerto Rico into the bankruptcy code complicated as well. For example, the bankruptcy code doesn't have any mechanism to adjust territorial level debt. So if Congress had wanted to modify the bankruptcy code to truly help Puerto Rico at the territory level, it would have had to have made some substantive adjustments in addition to simply saying, okay, Puerto Rico is now eligible for bankruptcy. I do have to acknowledge, of course, that PROMESA hasn't worked perfectly. Puerto Rico's future is still uncertain, even to this day, about four years after it's been passed. And Congress's choice to provide bespoke relief has arguably created some problems of its own in terms of uncertainty, in terms of increased costs. For example, there have been numerous challenges to the authority of the oversight board and to the scope of their authority and to the appointment of the board members. But the key point here, I think, is that Puerto Rico was a bankruptcy misfit. It needed bankruptcy, but the relief the code provided wouldn't work for it. And so by providing relief outside of the bankruptcy code, Congress did open the door, at least, to a fresh start for Puerto Rico. The other high-profile example of bespoke bankruptcy that I talk about at some length in the paper is Dodd-Frank. So Dodd-Frank, obviously, it's a big law. It has many components. But 
part of what it does is it combines ex-ante regulation with a collective process to discharge a debtor financial institution's obligations. So bank holding companies are eligible to file for bankruptcy, but banks themselves are not. So they cannot use the bankruptcy code. They're ineligible. And rather than amend the bankruptcy code to allow banks to file, Congress decided to create an orderly liquidation mechanism under which the FDIC, acting as a receiver, can seize and break up and wind down a distressed, systemically important financial institution. And Congress looked at the distress of these financial institutions and believed that the failure of a SIFI, of a systemically important financial institution, is materially different from the failure of non-financial businesses. And so Although SIFIs need a federal process for value maximization, it shouldn't come from the bankruptcy code. And in the case of these financial institutions, I think at least in part, because their distress implicates responses from the FDIC and from the federal government, their resolution is likely better taken care of under a bespoke system than under the bankruptcy code, because many, if not all, of the bankruptcy code's standard templates I should say really none of them take the role of regulators or the federal government into account all that well. And so a bespoke system seems more fitting for these financial institutions than simply creating another chapter under the bankruptcy code. I'd like to turn a little bit to the normative and policy piece of this paper. As you note uh, in some of these examples, Congress is in the business of bespoke bankruptcy and you suggest that there are perhaps uh, times when that makes sense versus trying to uh, accommodate them into the existing templates or to create a new bankruptcy template. I wondered if you could maybe highlight or outline some normative or pragmatic or policy principles that Congress should be observing when it gets into the business of bespoke bankruptcy. Yeah. So I think one of the big questions that I devote a good portion of the paper to trying to answer is to what extent should Congress be in the business of bespoke bankruptcy? There are times when Congress will just amend the bankruptcy code as opposed to going off in some totally new direction. And so there are clearly multiple avenues that Congress can use to provide bankruptcy misfits debt relief. And so I come to the conclusion in the paper that use of bespoke bankruptcy ought to be limited. There are several reasons, but There are huge costs, both in terms of the resources needed to design and implement a bespoke system, but also in terms of the uncertainty that just comes with any bespoke system's execution. One of the benefits that we actually have with the bankruptcy code and its standard templates is predictability. The bankruptcy code has been around since 1978, and there's an understanding that if you go through a bankruptcy process you have at least sort of a predictable universe of possible outcome. You don't have that with a bespoke system that's totally new. And so I think for that reason, we want to be cautious with our use of bespoke bankruptcy. There's also a concern that the concept of bankruptcy law itself sort of erodes the more bespoke we get. And what I mean by that is by creating a specialized law for every entity that we think might need or deserve one, we risk making bankruptcy law itself less coherent. And that impacts other laws and other areas of the law. So for example, there are other areas of non-bankruptcy law that say, okay, if someone files for bankruptcy, then this happens. But if we don't know whether someone has filed for bankruptcy or not, that could really throw things off, I suppose. And so we want to make sure that bankruptcy law itself stays sort of coherent and that we're using the code for most things. At the same time, 
We have to acknowledge that bankruptcy isn't perfect, right? It's not all encompassing. And that bespoke bankruptcy can sometimes provide debt relief where none is otherwise available. And I think that's a benefit that shouldn't be lightly dismissed. So in the paper, I spend some time discussing factors to consider when deciding whether it's worth it for Congress to put together specialized legislation. As a baseline matter, I think it's important to ask whether the entity can liquidate its assets or whether it's societally important for it to remain viable due to the public nature of the goods or services that it provides. So Puerto Rico is a great example of an entity that really cannot just sell off its assets and try and move on. The territory and its instrumentalities provide essential goods and services to the Puerto Rican public. So asking it to sort of sell things off and move forward is essentially asking it to halt those important services. And so if the entity must remain viable due to its social importance, it might be a good candidate for bespoke bankruptcy. And that's because the bankruptcy code, and this is something I didn't touch on before, but I touch on in the paper, generally speaking, the bankruptcy code contemplates that debtors who use it will actually have a choice to either liquidate assets or reorganize. And so if we have a debtor or a potential debtor that lacks that choice, we might consider providing them with a bespoke system one that's responsive to the fact that they cannot just turn tail and liquidate if a reorganization doesn't work out. But to my mind, that's only the threshold inquiry. Once we decide that a particular entity might be a good candidate for bespoke bankruptcy, we should also be asking some additional questions. So some of these questions are geared at least in part towards the concern about cost and expending resources. So we might ask how many of these entities exist and how similar are they to each other? And here's where I kind of push on the definition of bespoke a little bit in the paper. You know, bespoke doesn't have to mean and probably shouldn't mean unique to one individual debtor, like just Puerto Rico. It simply means more tailored to the needs of a group of entities that resemble each other and for whom bankruptcy isn't a good fit. So we might consider, for example, a bespoke system for all U.S. territories. We should also ask how well the bankruptcy code works or could work for the entities at issue. So can we simply amend the bankruptcy code to accommodate these potential debtors? Or is there some hurdle that's preventing this? For example, if the entity at issue isn't currently eligible for bankruptcy code relief, why isn't it? What policy hurdles are standing in the way of eligibility? What legal hurdles are standing in the way? And how significant are these hurdles? How difficult are they to overcome? I also think it's worth asking whether the entity in question is particularly vulnerable to systemic risk or even exogenous shocks. And if we think that the entity in question isn't all that vulnerable, then perhaps it's not worth expending the effort to create a relief system for it, at least not at the current time, right? It might be something that we return to every couple of years and assess. The goal of all of this is to devise a system where we identify candidates that might be good for bespoke bankruptcy but where we also situate those candidates within the larger reality that Congress has limited time, limited resources, limited energy to expend, and where we make sure that we're only moving forward with a bespoke system if it makes sense when assessed from multiple angles. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? One of the paper's key takeaways is that if you apply the factors I've just mentioned to governmental entities, such as states and maybe even municipalities, those entities may very well benefit from a bespoke system. 
And so I think this paper has something to say about the debate over whether states should file for bankruptcy. It doesn't tackle that question head on, but this is a question that comes up every so often. I think it came up recently last year when Mitch McConnell said something to the effect of, we should just let states go bankrupt. And so every so often it rears its head, should states be able to file for bankruptcy relief? And if so, how do we do that? And I think this paper opens the door to the possibility of a unique kind of relief for states. And then I would say one of the biggest things that the paper kind of triggers for me, I guess, is a question about other entities that might need bespoke relief. So the goal of the paper is not to identify each and every possible candidate for bespoke relief, but to outline a process that we can take to identify these entities and to assess whether bespoke relief is worth the cost in a particular circumstance. And so I think a lot of work needs to be done to actually apply this process to particular candidates in the future. But the goal of the paper is to kind of give that framework. And then the only other thing I'll say is that for me, at least, this paper also raises questions about how much we want our bankruptcy system to handle and who we think deserves bankruptcy relief. I think particularly these days, we see bankruptcy being almost enlarged in many respects to accommodate problems and issues that maybe we don't typically think of as within the scope of bankruptcy law. Mass tort bankruptcies are something that come to mind, but I think there are other examples as well. And I think the possibility of bespoke bankruptcy implicates these larger issues about who should have access to bankruptcy and for what purposes. And also how much relief the bankruptcy system by itself can be expected to provide. These aren't questions that I answer in the paper, but I'm continuing to explore them. And they're definitely where I hope to focus my future work. Our guest today has been Laura Cordes, Associate Professor of Law at Arizona State University. We've discussed her article, Bespoke Bankruptcy, which is forthcoming in the Florida Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Laura, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.